Hello and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode three of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder and head of ventures at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Sankit, the CEO of Synapse. How are you doing today, Sankit? I'm doing good. How about you, Simon? Really good. I am feeling caffeinated and ready to go. Um, I am looking forward to uh, one fantastic show. Um, in the last show, we talked all about payments and how they're the next frontier of innovation. But this week, we're taking a slight step back and looking at licensing, banking licenses, other forms of licenses, and what are all the things you need to be able to offer any kind of financial solution in the first place. Um, we want to look at the challenges of getting a banking license, especially in the US, and also uh, how not having a banking license isn't always a drawback. In fact, it could even be an advantage um, through the joys that is banking as a service and partnership. So um, let's see if you still need a banking license to offer a successful financial services product. Um, Joining us to dive into this, we are joined by some incredible guests. Uh, first up is the one and only uh, Joe Diwar, who is the CEO of Global Processing Services, otherwise known as GPS. Welcome to Under the Hood. Uh, remind everybody who GPS is. Hi, Simon. It's great to be here. So yeah, Global Processing Services, we are an issuer processor. So we are the third-party technology provider doing the heavy lifting behind a whole range of fintechs, challenger banks, uh, e-wallet providers, and some uh, digital banks for the traditional banks as well. So we work with organizations with a full range of different types of banking license and construct. And so really looking forward to this conversation. The OG of fintech themselves, GPS. Um, so good to have you involved. Teo, um, who is founder and CEO at Fintech OS. I'm not going to try and say your last name, Teo, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you give us a quick rundown of Fintech OS and how to say your last name? Sure. So my name is Teo Blidaros. Thanks for, uh, for having me here, Simon, and uh, all the guests. So basically at Fintech OS, you know, we look ourselves as a, as a company with a mission to transform how people engage with everyday financial services. Thus, we empower banks and insurance companies to become truly customer centric via what I would call the data at the core approach. So our platforms, our technology platforms for banking, it's called Lighthouse for insurance called Northstar, integrate and use customer data to enable personalization at every level of the customer journey from the real you know, core processes and service offering all the way to the actual engagement app. And uh, you know, this actually allows them to compete and differentiate in the market. So we've been hardworking, but also you know, quite fortunate to, to have gained uh, the trust for, of more than uh, 40 uh, global institutions uh, that run FinTech OS today, like uh, Societe Generale, Erste Bank, Reliance Bank, Scotia Bank, Hyperion Insurance, and, and many more. Teo, excited to have you with us. And uh, joining them is a client of Synapse, I believe, Sankit. Who have we got with us? Yeah, and we also have Siddharth with us. Siddharth, welcome to the show. Can you give everyone an overview on Juno? Hi, guys. Uh, firstly, thanks a lot for having me here, uh, Sankit and Simon. So at on Juno, uh, consumers can create a digital-only high-yield checking account, which comes with a metal card. This FDIC-backed account 
gets users to earn 2.15% on their deposits and earn a 5% cashback on any five brands that the users select. We have all the big brands listed out there. Uh, you name it, Amazon, Netflix, Best Buy, Walmart, to just name a few of them. But yeah, we have all the other uh, big brands as well. Our tech team is based out of India and we are building for the Asian Americans in the US. We believe that this is a segment that is not well understood by the existing banks since they have very different banking needs. So, for example, they're heavily focused on savings. And this is even true while they're spending. So they want cashbacks all the time, right? And they and whatever uh, funds they're saving, they want a heavy interest on that. So so that's one example of it. And other examples being, you know, most of these uh, uh, Asian Americans actually have the need to do remittances back to their native lands every now and then. Uh, they also expect humans to be there to answer all their queries when they have any query or when they have any concern about a particular transaction. And we believe since we understand the segment and with our super powered customer support team, we uh, believe we understand the segment truly and uh, we want to continue to be on top of the future needs and and opportunities that come our way uh, in this segment. And love anything that's really genuinely focused on customer. Um, but let's get into the banking licensing stuff and work back to the customer from there. Sanke, I'm going to come to you. What does having a banking license actually mean? And, and maybe give us a US perspective in particular as well. Yeah, for sure. Pretty much in the US, having a banking license means either you're regulated by the OCC, the Fed, or the FDIC. Uh, what that really means is you have been approved to take custody of consumer and business deposits and have access to the U.S. banking rails. So bank-to-bank transfers may it be with ACH, may it be with wires, what have you. Uh, so really owning a banking license means you're a custodian of uh, user funds. With that comes tons of obligations. Um, and you also have the sacred right to access the payment rails that only banks are allowed to in the U.S., Nice and to the point, I think it's a phenomenal definition. Joe, I'm going to come to you. That's probably quite similar for the European as well. It's just the regulators are different. I think it's, the, the regulators are different for sure, but I think there's also two tiers of type of banking license, which is actually in part what's enabled the fintech revolution to take off in the way that it has in Europe, which is, you know, you have your fully regulated, and in the UK that would be your PRA regulated Uh, institution. And then we have the concept of the e-money license, which is much lighter touch than the full bank regulation. And and crucially, you know, you're not able to use or touch those funds in the same way. They're, They're safeguarded funds that sit in a separate tier one bank. So quite a different, uh, light touch construct, still safe from a consumer's perspective but uh, it has a lower capital requirement to get up and running and has enabled a lot of the innovations that we've seen. Interesting. Teo, what are your reflections on that licensing difference? You've worked with banks around the world and you've probably worked with with several fintechs as well. What do you think the main differences are in, in different geographies? Is it largely the same? I think there are, you know, um, important differences. If you look at Europe, you know, genuinely tends to be, you know, more in control of banking, banking licenses. You're looking at, uh, you know, the Southeast Asia market that we serve to, to some, you know, both some fintechs and some, some tier one banks. It's, uh, it's hugely different. But I think, um, 
as we are emerging in, into this era, what happens is that there's a natural tendency for the central banks to keep some degree of control, while also offering additional layers of uh, regulation for uh, you know, the ever-increasing uh, number of fintech players. And you can see this both in banking and in insurance. And I think at the end of the day, it's uh, how you can, you know, their responsibility is how they can effectively create a more competitive uh, ecosystem of financial players, uh, you know, that effectively empower the customer to have better financial services, to have more personal financial services, to have an option to choose. And I think, frankly, we're still quite a long way from that space, especially if you think about SME. Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm going to bring Sid in, in just a second, but Sankit, before we do, I'd, I'd love to unpack our friend the Durban Amendment uh, in the US, because post Dodd-Frank and the global financial crisis, there was a regulation passed that really has kind of changed the game in terms of the economics available for the US um, and, and what that allows in terms of, of how businesses generate revenue. Do you want to just take a second and, and unpack what that is as well? So essentially, US created a new regulation, I believe about 2010, sometime around then, where the contemplation was large banks can make a lot of revenue from deposits by lending, while small banks are unable to because they don't have massive balance sheets. So to be able to kind of like account for that uh, massive divide and also give some relief to merchants, pretty much the regulators in the US came up with the construct that if you have less than $10 billion in total assets you are going to get a higher interchange revenue than if you have more than $10 billion in assets. Essentially creating the opportunity for back then not knowing, but this whole wave of neobanks where their primary revenue driver ends up being their card issuer or their bin sponsor, if you may, in more technical speak, ends up being a bank below $10 billion in assets, thus creating the opportunity for this fintech company uh, to really monetize the card usage and also helping the bank scale their card and payment volume and thus the bank also making the revenue in itself. So that's what's happened for any, and there's another caveat to this. So this only applies to debit bins. So for any like direct deposit account backed cards, um, if you are banked at a bank that has less than $10 billion, essentially that bank is going to make a much higher interchange revenue versus a bank that is over $10 billion. And that's going to make a flat, I believe, around 20 or 25 cents in interchange revenue. Mm-hmm. So I think, and I think that's, uh, as you said, one of the reasons why I think we're seeing now this explosion of new uh, neobanks across the US. And, and, and Sid, I want, I want to come to you now and bring you in. As you were putting together on Juno, was there a reason, you know, uh, how did you look and how did you look at the trade-offs of you know, going the route of trying to apply for a license? And, and, and what did the landscape look like from you, from your perspective when you were kicking off? I think, I mean, since uh, on Juno's tech team actually sets out of India, I think we are the truest beneficiary uh, to this new concept of partnering with for for uh, of partnering with someone for a banking license, so I mean a couple of years ago, no one could have even thought in the wildest of imagination uh, that you could actually sit out of US and launch a product, a banking product in US, which is uh, such a highly regulated space, right? And the fact that we can think of it, not only think of it, having done that and having done that as at such a fast-paced uh, mechanism is something that's incredible. And I think that's what gives a lot of power to the consumers of these services because, you know, now they will have innovators coming from 
anywhere, uh, literally anywhere sitting in the world. Uh, and you can actually innovate on, on certain niches. I mean, neobanks are all about niches, right? So you can actually innovate on certain niches and uh, deliver that particular service or offering that you know that which will appeal to that particular segment. So just the fact that you have an option to do that, I think is incredibly powerful, incredibly Sid, um, also, I think it'd be valuable to dissect the fact that in your case, what I personally found really fascinating was, yes, like you're kind of building a traditional banking product, but you're also sitting at the intersection of banking and crypto. So inherently, uh, um, getting a bank charter or or banking license would not have been in your best interest because you're trying to kind of like think of financial services as how can you get your customers the highest interest and things like that. And you don't want to be tied to a specific uh, uh, charter for that. I think it'd be great to just talk about that generally as well, because I personally found that extremely fascinating. So actually, Simon and I were just talking uh, about this before. Basically, the fact that we are approaching this particular problem, like there are there are a lot of people who are approaching, I mean, a lot of crypto folks, in fact, approaching this problem in a way that, you know, we will solve for the crypto uh, folks first and then add mainstream fintech products on top of it, right? And uh, what uh, what Mode has done in, in London uh, very recently, and uh, what we also completely believe is the fact that we need to actually create the basic infrastructure, the basic banking stack, which is highly regulated, which users are very much comfortable with. And then after we gain the trust, add another layer of crypto in it. And that's when things become really interesting because... If, even if you look at, you know, anything that's mainstream and then it uh, asks the user to do one more thing for their benefit, the credibility really increases a lot. If you just look at the PayPal example, right, they've partnered with Paxos to do crypto uh, investments. The kind of enthusiasm that they have received from the mainstream audience is something that even a Coinbase or, uh, you know, definitely not a compound, but even a Coinbase couldn't uh, have achieved. So point being, you know, we're just trying to focus solely on the uh, mainstream uh, focus right now, which is, you know, the the traditional banking route, uh, wanting to change the way traditional banking happens, wanting to add a refreshing new look to the uh, to, to the whole uh, banking scenario. And then, um, you know, once we feel that the uh, that, that our users segment is ready, uh, we can actually go ahead and add the crypto uh, integration as well. I like that point, Sid, that you sort of almost, um, with where you are, you're almost sitting above the regulated financial infrastructure and solving different problems. So you have a different business model as a result. Somebody else is doing the licensed bit of banking, but you can also partner elsewhere for other people doing other things with other financial products without having to build the the deep plumbing into all of that. And so that space above being a bank is, is really, really nice. Uh, Teo, you want to jump in there? Yeah, sure. Uh, basically, I, I was listening to this and I, I was thinking about, um, you know, that at the end, it's, it's less about who owns the license, it's about value creation, right? Or value added. Uh, because, for example, we, we serve a number of uh, telco providers across Europe who, you know, some of them, they don't have a banking license, but uh, they do offer, you know, um, loans, they do offer payments, they process payments, they do offer cards. Um, so they do a full spectrum, you know, bank assurance, they do a full spectrum of uh, partnerships that allow them to, uh, you know, get into the, let's say, the get financial services, embedded financial services into the mobile app or, or, of uh, their uh, everyday customers. And I have seen also the other, let's say, face of the coin where 
traditional financial institutions, they are partnering with ecosystem players in insurance, in travel, in you know a lot of payments, obviously, uh, to effectively combine and, and uh, you know create more bespoke financial services, and then offer those financial services through a banking as a service architecture to the to the end customers, but also to their uh, to their distribution players. And I think at the end of the day, this is uh, you know what what drives the revolution, not necessarily the overall uh, you know I have a license, I don't have a license. Yeah, interesting. Sid, you wanted to jump back in there? Yeah, so basically, uh, getting a banking license is only one part of the story, right? Uh, what lies ahead of it, which is actually the compliance to all those regulatory uh, functions, that is something that is completely overlooked when someone is actually looking at, you know, whether we should have, apply for a banking charter or not. And and honestly, when you partner with a third-party service provider, the guidance that you get in order to comply with those compliances, uh, mandatory compliances, is, is something that is uh, definitely much more valuable than what you would have otherwise received had it just been an open banking partnership, so to say. So I guess not just applying for a banking charter, it's also the various compliances that come along with it after you get the banking charter is something that is definitely an unnecessary headache for someone who's just trying to build for the consumers, who's trying to get the uh you know get the wow factor in for the consumers first they don't want to worry about all that plumbing work they just want to worry about how do we get there it's interesting said um i i think we've seen uh, the sentence crop up a few times um getting a license is hard keeping it is harder and a lot of the big bankers in the world will certainly tell you keeping a license is where most of the work is but joe we've seen a few fintechs uh, certainly in europe and the uk go the other way um, famously, um, Monzo started out more on the e-money side. It sort of and then went for the full banking license. It did one and then the other. Is there an advantage to moving down the stack that as these businesses start to scale? Because the, these things are always trade-offs. Yeah, I think there's there's two parts to that. Firstly, um, I realised where I was talking about sort of EMIs and and fully regulated. We haven't really talked about. In the Europe, there's two different scales. You've got the actual banking license side. And then from a scheme perspective, you've got the bin sponsorship or the issuing bank side. And that certainly exists in the UK as well. And what we've really seen, uh, to your point, Simon, is that, uh, you know, leveraging the capabilities of a sponsor bank has enables that fast start. And what we've often seen over time is as fintechs have scaled and they're maturing, they then seek to potentially move up the value chain. And so they do consider taking on, you know, getting their EMI and then moving to principal membership and then potentially going for the full bank license as the the case with uh, Monzo. You know, that's all part of the evolution of moving up uh, the value chain and and bringing more and more in-house. What we found was actually, say, four or five years ago, the bin sponsors actually did so much of the, um, they took on so much of the, the the regulatory responsibilities from a sort of compliance AML, those kind of perspective. And over time, actually, they've pushed more and more onto the fintechs anyway. And so as they've had to push more and more on, it's become a smaller step for those fintechs to think about, well, actually, I'm doing a lot of this anyway. I've built the functions anyway. So it's not too much of a step further to then sort of be able to take the bin sponsor out of the equation, take that cost out of the the, the cost base and have that full ownership. 
So that's really the the journey that we've seen many go through over the years. And I think Europe is a, is a slightly different market to the US in that we don't have a, a Durban amendment. Interchange levels are extremely low. So and trying to manage cost and economics is, is much more of an imperative here, I think, from that perspective. But also that wraparound of kind of compliance um, providers as a service and customer service as a service doesn't really exist in the same way that it does in the US. So um, I'm interested, um, Sanke, in, in your perspective on you know, why are the folks like um, Varro and Chime going for full charters, and and why might that work for some people and not others? I think um, the most important contemplation here is that Varo and Chime are more so on the older version of the banking infrastructure. What I mean by that is, to Joe's point, for in their mind, the choice actually is: look, we're having to indirectly comply by so many of these regulations ourselves. How much more does it add uh, um, onto our obligations if we also end up getting a banking charter? Because one important piece to understand here is before this banking infrastructure, banking as a service, lending as a service concepts existing, uh, the way these relationships used to work was all of the obligations would be passed down to the fintech company or the brand, if you may, and they would have to indirectly comply by that with the partner banks. Since then, that has changed. For instance, if you work with someone like Synapse, the pieces that you have to focus on end up being your fraud strategy and your marketing guidelines not the rest of the stack as well. So it's not that you're responsible for KYC, AML, sanction screenings. It's not that you're responsible for monitoring for SARS. Um, It's not that you're responsible for doing CTRs and all these other requirements. You can also offload Reg E, Reg Z contemplations and really focus on uh, uh, managing your risk with a financial services product. And the second piece is manage your marketing guidelines, how you're marketing and distributing your product. That's an inherently different obligation and value you said, compared to what Chime and Varo were offered when they got started. So I, we think there's going to be some sheep herd mentality, where I think some more people would probably try to like think about getting a charter. But over time, it's not going to be as strong of a proposition because by definition, you're not going to have to comply with a bunch of things. And we think the new breed of fintech companies look a whole lot like Onjuno, in which banking is just an aspect of their value creation, but their roadmap goes much beyond banking. And then getting a charter wouldn't be the best proposition for them as well. Yeah, and, and I think that's the difference, isn't it, with, with the US? The step between sort of no charter and charter is so massive. The services somewhere in the middle are quite different. And then I love this point about the second wave of neobanks. Like the first one is very sort of almost like the the high street bank, the big name brand bank. It does what they do, but way better with way more customer centric features. But I think about an on Juno, like a daylight, Killer Mike Greenwood's uh, Greenwood Bank, like all of these niche players that are starting to emerge doing solving for a particular community. Teo, do you see the same thing happening elsewhere as well? Do you think this community, digital community bank is, is kind of going to drive change in the infrastructure as well? Absolutely. I think, you know, one thing that we are highly concentrating and contemplating actually is, you know, development of the overall ecosystem. And I think, you know, I, I know that people tend to believe that when you're talking about, you know, a hyper-personalized service, it's, it's like a marketing buzzword. But essentially, it isn't, right? So it's, it's the purpose of the new ecosystem that is forming in financial services where to, to blur the lines between different products and services, 
right? Up to the point that you, you shouldn't really care that, you know, this is a bank, this is an insurer, this is an MGA, this is an asset management company. And bring that level of, um, you know, service together, allow essentially the end customer to decompose the overall service and basically assemble it uh, so that it resembles uh, his or her needs. And I think that you see this um, also, funny enough, you don't necessarily see it with the first, um, you know, the, the first wave of, of fintechs, because I think they were born and bred for the beginning to think that they are competing with banks. But then, then you see that, you know, the second wave of, of, uh, of, of these players, you know, again, Southeast Asia, but also in Europe, you know, you have some very interesting players in UK and CE, for example, that they, they look at it and they, they say, you know, wait a minute. So why should I spend, I don't know, 70 million, 100 million to, you know, to get that banking license when I can effectively put that, you know, those millions, those investment into, you know, uh, building a, a proprietary you know, in highly differentiated service stack, then I can then push into the market. And you look at, uh, for example, companies like Revolut, this is how they drive profitability across customers, right? I think, you know, you're, they are taking, you know, insurance products from there, they are taking wealth management products from there. You know, it's, it's, it's becoming a race, not to how financially muscular you are, but how creative and, you know, how fast to the market you can be. That to me, you've just hit the nail on the head, Teo, just with that. It feels like feature velocity or shipping velocity is a power law in this market. And those that have it are succeeding and growing user bases and growing revenue. Uh, whereas those with the largest balance sheets, actually in a long-term low interest rate environment, potentially not doing as well, although we may see um, inflation return. Sorry, Joe, you were about to jump in. To add to the same point, really, that ultimately it's do the customers care whether the brand they're taking the product from has got the banking license or not? I mean, and, you know, there are poll after poll that's coming out that's suggesting that that's not the case. And therefore, you know, these, you know, brands are, you know, proving that they can be successful without the, the banking license. And I think, Siddharth, I want to come to you on this because um, how much do you hear from your own customer research that like, oh, well, who's the bank and where's the deposit? And how much is it something else? Can you give me any real examples of that and and, and anything from your experience? Yeah, sure. So, uh, in fact, you know, we always tend to underestimate the intelligence of the average consumer. And uh, in all our initial user research, you know, when we were actually thinking, whether FDIC insurance, just adding that particular tag, is that even a necessity or is that even something that will, you know, shift the needle? And uh, what we realized was that's absolutely true. We uh, had done around 200 to 300 interviews or user interviews at that point. And at least 50% of them were uh, asking us this one single question. Hey, all that is great, but are you guys FDIC insured? And just having that as an answer was very, very reassuring to these users that, okay, fine, my money is going to be safe. I don't need to worry about the safety of my money, at least. Now comes the next part. Okay, where are you going to put that money? And if it's a bank that they've, uh, even if they've not heard of, that's absolutely okay. But the fact that they are concerned about the benefits that they receive of of finding out where their money is going is something that we need to credit the average user with. 
Yeah, and that psychology is so powerful. I mean, we saw this, Joe, with with everything that happened with Wirecard in that, uh, you know, th- there are things that can happen in this space, but ultimately with, with Wirecard, um, it, it, the protections work. The system seemed to work. Yeah, I mean, the protections uh, did work because with EMIs, you still got that uh, safeguarding in a uh, discrete tier one bank. So, the funds themselves were safe in the period that there was the suspension and the challenge. I think the difference language-wise with the UK regulators, the fully regulated bank, you've got the protection from the FSCS, the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, uh, and and there are equivalents in different countries. So you have got a different mechanism of protection, but it's not that with only having the EMI or the BIN sponsor provision, you know, your money's not safe. It's just a different type of safety. Yeah, the European it has a different kind of licensing regime, but ultimately in, in, you end up in the same place. You give the confidence. It's, but it's a similar kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's one of those nuances. Sanke, I, I want to come to you. Do the Apple customers of Apple Card need to see like the powered by Goldman, uh, Marcus by Goldman underneath it to trust it, or are they just excited that it's an Apple Card? Uh, probably not. I think they're excited that it's an Apple card. I would actually argue if some of them knew it was Goldman Sachs, they probably won't get it. Um, mm. But uh, this is the power of brand at the end of the day. Like, it's not, uh, uh, when Sid was talking about this, like, it's not really, it's anytime a new player is entering a market, uh, if you have existing players showing support by partnership or something like that, it just helps strengthen their brand. But at the end of the day, in consumers' mind, what they're really focused on is, is this a trustworthy brand? And Apple stands out more than Goldman will in that case. So to your point, yeah, I don't think Apple customers cared about Goldman as much. And I think same applies for banks like Chime. Uh, Chime behind the scenes, obviously, is starting to work with multiple banks versus just Bancorp now. Uh, trying uh, Chime's brand transcends the bank uh, that they're working with, so it's not that their consumers care as much about who's the underlying bank; they care about that it's Chime. Yeah, and it's almost becoming, to Sid's point, the FDIC becomes like a rubber stamp. It's safe somewhere. You don't really care where, but it's following these rules. Um, and, and that kind of becomes uh, becomes a different uh, perspective. But Teo, you said something interesting as well, though, because like if, if banks are just being commoditized, can they lean into this trend a little bit or is it all downside? I think absolutely. So back to your point, I said this is why they call it infrastructure, right? So it's infrastructure because you aren't supposed to understand all the intricacies of it. And and you should care as a provider for your customers. You should care about, uh, you know, creating that differentiated added value. And we've seen, for example, uh, banks like Societe Generale, right, and, and other banks that are simply looking at this and, and they're saying, you know, there's a, you know, a number of innovations that are going to come from my side. There's a number of innovations that are going to come from the ecosystem. I'm going to work together to create that, you know, unitary, that unified, um, you know, personalized service layer. And I'm going to expose it either directly or through my partners into the market. This is an interesting way because at the end of the day, talking about whether the customer care about the brand or not, I think, you know, it's sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Typically, the, you know, the more complex the service it is. If it you know involves some sort of protection investment, you would probably want to have an understanding. 
but at the end of the day is you know that what's what's going to draw the balance uh, in your favor as a provider of financial services is that differentiated value add so this is what you should be caring about uh, at the end of the day less about technology less about licenses less you know you, you can't say less about compliance you need to stay compliant but I, I would shift the discussion from you know we need more banking licenses to you know we need you know a better banking uh, as a service infrastructure we need better ecosystem integration tools we need you know you know a better mindset in terms of uh, innovating when it comes to to the services that you're offering mm. I, I think that space becomes really key sankit doesn't it that like actually if you can have the infrastructure handle a lot of this uh, a lot of the challenges including as you said earlier around uh, some of the aml stuff and some of the other challenges you abstract that away from the from the brand a little bit um and then you've mentioned that the brand has a few focuses talk to me about like um aside from marketing where does the customer service sit on that like uh, do they handle that do they have the option of handling it the, the things they can and can't do yeah, I think there are tiers to customer service. I think there are two aspects to the banking infrastructure that are evolving quite rapidly. And I think we'll see some interesting stuff over the course of the next few years. The first piece ends up being customer service. By and large, the unanimous consensus is that the brand wants to handle their own customer service because they want to get to know their customers. They want to really treat customers the way like they want to treat customers appropriately and really want to make sure that their cultures and values translate into customer service as well. Then there are some aspects of customer service that are very process driven, like disputes, making sure people get their statements on time, making sure people get notices when a transaction's made, and so on and so forth. Some of those pieces are just very transactional. Customer files for a dispute, the dispute gets processed. Uh, um, either they win a claim or they lose a claim, applying provisional credit, and then all the notices, which is sending them their statements, sending them a push notifications when a transaction is made, giving them balance alerts. We see, this is our perspective in this, that all of those notifications and processes in most cases are a function of regulation. And you're going to see that get offloaded into something like a customer service as a service, where it's going to be a hybrid of Twilio and kind of hybrid of uh, magic, if you may, uh, where you're getting notification center and you're getting some very like um, common uh, compliance workflows built as a service. Uh, we think that's one area that's going to be kind of like evolve a whole lot over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. The other area is not all brands are interested in also participating in the downside. So being able to come up with some kind of an economic model where they don't get 100% of the upside, they probably get close to 50% or a little less. But that also means there's no downside. In those cases, Probably the interchange revenue is not going to be the primary revenue driver. Some kind of a SaaS revenue or something like would be. Uh, but we think over the course of next 12 to 18 months, your customer service as a service and your zero liability intelligence upgrades onto the infrastructure are going to be two key areas that a lot of fintechs would want to delegate versus own. It makes a ton of sense. Sid, what are your thoughts? So uh, I definitely agree with, with the latter part, actually. You know, people, I mean, we when we are uh, creating new products, when we're creating products for the consumers, we really don't want to be bogged down by, hey, what can go wrong, right? I mean, obviously everyone needs to think that, but it's just a thing that you always need to think. You don't want to think that, right? Uh, so if that can be 
in fact, we were, uh, you know, in one of the founder groups, we were actually discussing uh, fintech founder groups uh, that, you know, what if FAAS, FAS, which is fraud as a service, becomes a thing, right? And that is something that really has a lot of value. And probably in the next one to two years, that is something that, that can come up. Of course, there are a lot of fragmented players over there, which some, 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 some of them cater to the identity part, some of them cater to the transaction part, some of them cater to the authentication part. But, you know, when it all comes together, uh, taking all the learnings and bringing them all together uh, and, you know, just providing a complete solution, fraud solution. I think that is something that that's going to be extremely interesting. As far as what the customer support uh, as a service is concerned, you know, a lot of big banks, they usually think of customer support as a cost center. Uh, whereas the startups, right, or rather people who are really building for a particular niche, they want to understand, as Sanket pointed out, right, uh, you know, they want to understand their customers. They want to be there uh, at, at the point where they need us. We want to be there, right, and and uh, develop a lot more and, and have our cultural values, as Sanket very rightly pointed out. So I think for a new age company, they would like to have control over that. And uh, maybe as time goes by, some portions of it, uh, which are very, very rudimentary, in fact, not only just handled by, uh, n- not really handled by the service provider, but actually the service provider could, you know, come up with guidelines or certain uh, list of things that, hey, you, you you know, you anyway have to do this. Either we do it for you and we have a standard white label way of doing it. If not, then you go ahead and do it. And, uh, you know, if you are doing it, then we will disable it from our end. So I guess it'll be a hybrid of both, depending on how on what values or cultural points uh, the company brings. But definitely these are going to be points which are going to be centralized in the service provider domain. Interesting comments. I think that customer service is the differentiator we've seen for many, many decades has, has been sort of a, a key thing and possibly even more so now. So there's that interesting gap of like, uh, when do I need to improve my product versus when do I need a human? And uh, I think what are the first wave of, of uh, neobanks sort of just did much better products that did away with the need for human high touch things just with great products, which then there are still products that need and interactions that need and probably even benefit from and are better for human interaction but does that have to take you know somebody calling on the phone or can that human interaction in the digital age also exist different ways uh, joe what are your perspectives on the conversation so i think uh picking up on what you're so- talking about in terms of fast or fraud as a service i think it's a fantastic example as to where leveraging the capabilities uh, or the knowledge and experience of the bin sponsors in setting up a company versus, you know, doing it alone makes total sense because ourselves together with the multitude of of bin sponsors that we work with, over time in launching hundreds and probably now thousands of products, we've built a huge bank of, you know, default uh, fraud protection rules. And they're based on all sorts of real world examples. And what every fintech is you know, a, a lot seem to be sort of naive about at the outset is, you know, of your first thousand customers, half of them are going to be fraudsters who because t- they will test out the newest program to market because it's least likely to have the various protections. And, you know, we've got that sort of knowledge and experience of sort of the common pitfalls and, and what to look out for. And so it's a brilliant example as to, you know, why leveraging uh, the experience of others makes so much sense. And, and uh, to add to that, right, it's not only just bringing in the knowledge, it's also, you know, one of the very common cases uh, which, which fraudsters use is 
they do not do a very high value fraud in a particular bank. They in fact do smaller values in multiple banks. And if there is a player who can actually argue in front of the court that, hey, this guy is actually not just doing these small things there, he's actually doing many small things. That's when uh, things start to become really interesting. I think that's the perfect point to uh, to throw back to Sankit before we close this one out. That's the point where things get really interesting. Sankit, do you agree? Yeah, um, like, gosh, we could like write a book on this. But to Sid's point, I think the most interesting thing is how much the financial services are getting democratized, which like I personally feel great about because this didn't exist five years ago, like, mind you. So like, it's just been super great for people around access, but that has also created this vessel for small dollar fraud, which is distributed. I think we could literally have a whole session about this, which I believe we will. Um, I yeah. believe we will get into AML um, and, and all of that kind of challenge. Because in, in the UK, we saw that the um, the neobanks actually got together and built um, discussion forums with the regulators to solve exactly this problem. And I think the more forums we have for that kind of thing, you know, new platforms always create new problems. Um, so let's make sure we we start to solve some of those. Uh, all right, guys. Well, I'm going to wrap us up because um, can you believe, even though we might want to make a, a book out of every bit of topic we had to cover today, fortunately, there's a whole podcast series and we will get into a lot, lot more of these. But I do want to thank our guests for lifting what's under the hood. Um, where can people find out more about you, starting with Sid? So as mentioned, uh, at Onjuno, we're creating a high-yield checking account, uh, which comes with a metal debit card and a lot of cashbacks. So if you're fed up with your current bank or simply are quenching for a refreshing new banking experience, do check us out at onjuno.com or just Google onjuno high yield checking account. Uh, and you can also... I love it. The full page. Yeah. <laughs> and you can also follow us on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn at onjuno HQ. Uh, in fact, we are offering six months free access to the metal tier if you sign up now and connect even part of your direct deposit into your own Juno account. He's so prepared. He's so prepared. Hey, that was awesome. That's well practiced. Um, Joe, how about you? Yes, yeah, so uh, globalprocessing.com is our website and I, I'm on LinkedIn and LinkedIn more than Twitter, but Joanne Dewar, that's J-O-A-N-N-E. Thank you so much. Uh, Teo? Thank you. So um, go to fintechos.com to learn more about Lighthouse which is our you know, value prop for, uh, for digital banking and North Star for insurance, community.fintechos.com. This is basically empowering you to build a whole bank or a whole insurance company you know, by yourself. And uh, do ping me on LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm, I'm around and I'm more than happy to learn. Thank you. Love it. And uh, Sankit? Yeah, you can go on synapsefi.com um, and we use the same handle on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, not on Facebook. So if you want to engage with us on Twitter or LinkedIn, you can go there too. Thank you. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. Um, if you like this podcast, please do remember to subscribe to get all the latest episodes as soon as they're released. Uh, tell everyone you know about it. Um, this has been a phenomenal discussion and we're going to have many, many more like it. Spread the word and pass the podcast along. Uh, if you want to find out more about the show, you can find more on the 11FS and Synapse social platforms. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>